welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. This week's special guest is the Peer Baroness Cox. Simon Barrington went to meet her in the House of Lords to record this special episode. So today on the Forge Leadership Podcast, I'm joined by Baroness Caroline Cox. Baroness Cox is a crossbench peer in the House of Lords and is the President and CEO of HEART, the Humanitarian Aid and Relief Trust, which she describes as not just another aid organisation. Baroness Cox, welcome to the podcast. Mm. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be with you. Wonderful. Now, we're in the Royal Gallery here. Tell us what it looks like here and where we're sat. Well, just before I tell you what it looks like, I always have to introduce myself <laughs> by saying that I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention. Uh-huh. That's what I thought I was doing in my life. I'm uh-huh. baroness by astonishment. Okay. God's sense of humour. <laughs> Wasn't into politics. I don't much like politics. So much not in this world. I was the first baroness I'd ever met. <laughs> you wake up one morning and find a baroness looking at yourself out of the bathroom mirror. Quite yeah. a shock. Yeah. But you think, what a privilege. How do I use it? Mm. And I think the message came very clearly mm. that to be able to speak in the House of Lords, one yes. of the Houses of the British Parliament. Yeah. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for those who don't have a voice or whose yeah. voices are not heard. Yeah. So that's how I try to use uh, my position here. And that's why I set up my little charity, yes. NGO Heart, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, uh, to provide aid and advocacy mm. for people whose voices on the whole are not heard. Mm. And I spend quite a lot of my time uh, crossing borders illegally quite shamelessly, <laughs> to reach people who are suffering from oppression and persecution, who on the whole are not reached by the major aid organisations for political reasons, because the government doesn't give them permission to go, we go anyway, or for security reasons, because they're risk-averse. And to some extent I can understand that if you're taking in people to work on the ground, you're responsible for them, and therefore you have to be responsible for them. But we work through local partners, and they're the heroes and heroines. They're local, they're there, they're indigenous, so risk-averse doesn't come into it. Yeah. So that's what I do, and that's why I'm sitting in this beautiful place to which you've just <laughs> referred, uh, the Royal Gallery. Yeah. And this is part of the Palace of Westminster, which was burnt down in the 1830s and rebuilt okay. in this glorious, unashamed Victorian neo-Gothic. Yeah, and there's some beautiful paintings around. And some, some of the scenes that are in these galleries that have biblical themes to them. Mm-hmm. Don't know, you were pointing out the Ten Commandments and Moses mm-hmm. in one of the, uh, the rooms uh, as well. Um, how do you bring your Christian faith to bear in the work that you're doing as, as a Baroness? Well, I try to fulfil the biblical mandate uh, through our little NGO heart, mm-hmm. uh, which is to try to speak for the oppressed, to heal the sick, mm-hmm. feed the hungry, mm-hmm. clothe the naked. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we try to do. Mm-hmm. And then this, of course, to speak in the British Parliament is a wonderful place to speak for the oppressed. And it's a wonderful place to get their stories on the record. It's a wonderful place to try and call the British government to account, to do more to help them. Now tell us about some of the places around the world that you're currently involved in through Heart and the things that concern you, really. You get to travel quite a lot into often very dangerous places. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, among the countries we're working with Heart at the moment are Sudan and South Sudan. I'll come back to that in just a moment because I've just returned from there. But also northern Nigeria, where there's been a very, very disturbing escalation of attacks on Christians. Recently, there have been attacks on Christians for decades, and thousands of Christians have been killed, hundreds of churches burnt. And since Boko Haram, quite a few Muslims have been killed as well. But recently, there's been a re-escalation of attacks on Christian villages and a worrying development 
is there are the well-known um, tribesmen, the herdsmen, yes. who drive their huge herds of cattle across vast swathes of land. They've always done that. Mm. And as they've driven over people's lands, it always caused some tension, mm. understandably. No one likes other cattle <laughs> eating your crops. <laughs> but um, more recently, very worrying, uh, they started attacking Christian villages and driving the Christians out and killing some of the Christians. Mm. Last time I was in northern Nigeria, or I was up in Plateau State, um, we went to four villages that had been attacked by the Fulani, and pastor being killed in his ruined home, we saw his ruined home, and most of the Christians had been forced away, and uh, the Fulani cattle were grazing there, and that's very worrying, because it's a shift from moving your cattle through and moving on to land grab and driving Christians off their homelands. And there is a fear that they seem to be increasingly well-armed and well-trained. Maybe they could be a proxy army for Boko Haram or other Islamist regimes. So Nigeria is another area where we're working. We're also working in eastern Burma. We call it Burma because the local people prefer that to Myanmar. And we're working with the Shan people, who are predominantly Buddhist, and the Kachin, who are predominantly Christian. We don't hear about them. We hear about the Rohingya, and the needs of the Rohingya are huge. But there is heavy fighting going on in northern Shan, southern Kachin states. We don't hear about that. There are thousands of displaced people. And the large aid organizations have tended to stop giving their money to eastern Burma. It's going to the Rohingya. So they are in a terrible situation. And we work with them for them. We have a wonderful partner organization there. Uh, Shan Women's Action Network, lovely name of Swan, and we, we work in through them. And we also work in the little Armenian enclave, which most people haven't heard of. I hadn't heard of it before I went there. Yeah. And it's called Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of ancient Christian Armenia that Stalin, with his salami tactics, stuck inside Azerbaijan. In the early 90s, Azerbaijan tried ethnic cleansing the Armenians from Karabakh. It was the most high-intensity conflict of the early 90s. I used to count 400 grand missiles a day pounding in their little capital city, low-flying aerial bombardment. 150,000 Armenians against 7 million strong Azerbaijan, David against Goliath, hunting rifles against tanks. But with faith and a lot of miracles and determination, they managed to hang in there. So there are still Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. But Azerbaijan unleashed another war um, two years ago this April. That was contained, but... um, Sadly, and it needs a lot of prayer. Mm. Azerbaijan is developing what I might call Armeniophobia, right. really disseminating hatred, yeah. even in school textbooks, mm. which could be a prelude for another war. Mm. So that needs a lot of prayer. Mm. Now, you said you'd recently come back from South Sudan. That's something that's uh, a country that's been on your heart for mm. a, a long, long time. And uh, obviously, since it's the youngest country on the uh, planet, um, there are still lots of refugees, both within. Uh, well, in, uh, uh, IDPs within South Sudan, um, but also refugees who fled South Sudan. What are the conditions like there currently within South Sudan and also in the Nuba Mountains as well? Well, the situation both in South Sudan and in the Republic of Sudan, which is the Old North, uh, which, of course, since the South got its independence, is now an independent republic, um, they die, but for different reasons. In South Sudan, uh, the people there inherited a legacy when they got their independence of a completely destroyed land, uh, devastation. There were only eight qualified midwives in the whole of South Sudan, two generations of kids who couldn't get education because of constant air bombardment. I mean, it was a, a desperate place and very, very hard to bring democracy into that kind of situation, especially as Khartoum was trying to destabilize it. And when civil war broke out, I think it's well known that Khartoum provided quite a lot of weapons to the rebel leadership, particularly the 
honorary, sorry, the um, vice president, yes. uh, Riyak Matra. Yeah. And so it's been a very, very difficult situation. Mm. And there is a lot of starvation, a lot of, as you said, displacement of people in huge numbers, a lot of killings, very tragically. Mm. Um, but there are also good things happening, and it's really important to recognize and support those. Yes. Yeah. Our partner there is the Anglican Archbishop okay. of the Diocese of Wau, yes. yeah. one of the most wiped out areas of South Sudan. And he's doing wonderful work. Mm. Um, he had 5,000 people fled into his compound dying of starvation from the 5, fighting. 5,000. Wow. And he had hardly any, nothing to give them. And he sent an SOS to Hart. Mm. So would Hart do what Hart always does, give us some emergency food. Mm. Well, we are not very big. We could only yeah. get 10,000 pounds. He said that would buy lots of sorghum and save a lot mm. of lives. Mm. And then as the people poured into his compound from different mm. tribes, mm. who had quite a lot of tribal tensions and hostilities, yes. he made them all live together. Mm. Uh, some of the camps, they separate yeah. them. He said, no, you're all here. And it, they, as they came in in their hundreds, he allocated parts of compound to them. They lived there for five months, three months. Yeah. And um, they made friends. Those who came in as hostile tribes left as good friends. They're now in a pretty bleak camp for displaced people uh, on the outskirts of Wau. But the bishop, archbishop also does some amazing things. He um, has developed a theological college, okay. St. John's Theological College, okay. yeah. which does really, really high standard yeah. work, yeah. is superb, yeah. and also teaches other courses as well, like yeah. which are needed, like business administration yeah. and so on. He supports schools, especially girls' schools, um, health care. Mm. We were just able to provide him money to build a clinic for the displaced people who are still stranded there. And very important, he does a lot of reconciliation work. He goes around his diocese preaching reconciliation and peace. And I think one of the hopes for South Sudan is what is going on at the grassroots level. Not at the top political leadership, there are problems there. But there are good things, and the churches are doing really good work at grassroots level. And that's often the case, isn't it, right around the world, that actually it's the churches, it's the grassroots communities who, who give us hope. Actually, you must have some amazing stories of, of individuals you've seen around the world who rise above their circumstances <laughs> and, and create light in, in, in dark situations. Can you tell us any more, like the Archbishop, uh, and any individuals that have really inspired you as you've... Oh, well, so, so many. Um, time's at a premium, so I'd just choose a really short story. Yeah, yeah. But going back to Eastern Burma, yeah. um, there was really heavy fighting against the Karen some years ago, and the Burmese army attacked villages, and they're made of wood, so they got like tinder. And I visited one of those villages after it had been attacked, and met a lovely lady, Masu, in her 30s. Her home had been burnt, and then a Burmese soldier running through the burning village, just shot civilians and shot her. She was quite badly wounded. She was in someone else's remnants of her home. And I asked her what she felt about the soldier who shot her. And her reply was unbelievable. She just, well, I love him. The Bible said we should love our enemies. So of course I love him. He is my brother. To say that the soldier who shot you is your brother yeah. is outside my spiritual uh, capabilities. No, absolutely. But that's what you find. You find amazing stories. And yeah. Syria, also working in Syria. And we were up in Aleppo mm. when Aleppo was still eastern Aleppo yes. in the hands of the Islamist mm. uh, jihadists. Mm. And the bombs were coming in all the time. Mm. And when we arrived in the evening, it's a local Armenian actually prepared the evening meeting. It was an outdoor dinner, which was generous because he had hardly any food. The bombs were coming in all the time. They had a quartet playing music. That's the Armenians for you, yes. while the bombs fell. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the morning, we had a service in the Armenian church that 
everybody came, the mullahs, the imams, the Yazidis, it was very inclusive, as was the dinner the night before. The communities are very close-knit, and the bombs were coming in all the time. But after the service, a Catholic Chaldean priest came up, and I'll never forget his words. He said, I've been thinking about the story of Doubting Thomas. And of course, Thomas wasn't there when our Lord appeared to the other disciples. And he said, I'm going to believe unless I see Jesus myself and put my hand into his wounded hands inside. Then our Lord appeared to him. He said, put your hands in my wounded hands inside. Now you believe, go and tell. Mm. And this priest said to us, this is a powerful phrase, mm. you came, you put your hands into the wounds of our suffering. Mm. Now you believe, go and tell. Yeah. To put your hands in the wounds of our yeah. suffering. Yeah. We can't feel or endure their suffering, but we yeah. can at least engage with it. This was often what people said to me when I went and visited them in the refugee camps in South Sudan was actually your very presence mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. It, it is a tonic to us, it's a balm to us, it brings mm-hmm. peace and, 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 and hope to us mm-hmm. as well. Uh, do you find that as you go around the world and, and visit Christians who are often persecuted? So often they say the fact you're here makes all the difference. Sometimes one feels so inadequate. Mm. What we have to offer, if we're very small in heart, mm. is not very much, I'm sure as Bill Gates. Mm. But we have <laughs> something. But I remember once again back in Burma, we heard it many times. Um, the fighting was going on, we crossed over illegally into Burma, into Karen State. We crossed um, the river and we climbed up Sleeping Dog Mountain. Mm. I didn't like Sleeping Dog Mountain, it was really steep. <laughs> sort of three steps up and two back, hanging onto vegetation. I was getting in a bad mood and thinking, Caroline, got your grandmother was in six grandchildren, and I got ten. Wow. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's about time you grew up and you stopped coming these ridiculous visits. <laughs> then we had to run bent double along the ridge of the mountain because it was Burmese army on the other mountain. And then we reached this little Karen village. And I'd been feeling really crisis of confidence. We had so little to offer them, and their yes. needs were so huge. Yeah. And I forget what they said. They said, thank you so much for coming. The fact you're here makes all the difference. That gives us the strength continue to struggle to survive yeah. in the words that drew balm to my anxiety yeah. wouldn't matter if you didn't bring anything the fact you're here yeah. is all that matters yeah. that makes all the difference yeah. what a privilege yeah and when you talk to people who are persecuted who are experiencing suffering um, what do they ask you to pray for and what do they ask you to give as a message back to the UK church so you know if you could say to the UK church and church leaders here what, what, what are they asking you to to mm. say on their behalf well that's incredibly humbling mm. because we're there in places like Nagorno-Karabakh at the war and people in basements and cellars with no food no medicines or in South Sudan similarly they often no food no medicines Syria and, and you say what's your priority we're going back What's your priority message? And it makes me feel so humble. They would say prayer. Please, please ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us. I mean, I'd be asking for the food, but they ask for prayer. And that's very sincere and very humbling. Now, we touched on Syria a little bit. Um, Give our listeners just a a view. You've been there a number of times during the conflict. Um, What hope do you see for the people in, in Syria? Do you see any changes happening um, or is it you know just as bad as it always has been or getting worse? Well I've been in Syria as you say um, when that fighting was still very bad especially up in Aleppo mm. went back again just a few months ago mm. and it's a very different scene. Okay. Um, the Syrian army together with help from Russia and this is a place where Russia is doing the right thing mm. uh, giving the priority to getting rid of ISIS mm. and the related Islamist groups. Yeah. Um, it's driven 
those jihadist groups out of most of Syria now. While we talk this afternoon, there's fighting going on in eastern Ghouta, yes. which is just right near Damascus. Yes. Um, what the media doesn't cover is the fact that uh, when you watch the BBC, all you get is the Syrian armed forces and the government attacking the rebels in East Ghouta. Well, you don't see or hear about the fact that bombs are falling in on Damascus. And um, we have in touch with our Christian brothers and sisters in Damascus and the other people in Damascus. And thousands have been killed in Damascus and injured and so on. Um, The government has offered humanitarian corridors and ceasefires to the rebels there in East Ghouta, which up till now they've declined. Um, There has been um, humanitarian uh, relief just allowed in, but uh, they say it's been shelled. Um, They say that, this is the rebels saying this from the rebel area, that the safe corridors for civilians to flee are bombed by government forces. Well, that's not the entire truth by any means from our friends in Syria. Um, The rebels, so-called, in East Ghouta are hardline Islamists, Um, they are, are really the, the terrorists yeah, of yeah. some of the most extreme forms, yeah. well supported by Saudi Arabia and by Qatar. And two little kids just escaped and they got into government-held areas and they described how their parents coming through one of the humanitarian corridors had been killed by the rebels mm. fighting them. Mm. So it's yeah. a very complex situation. Yes. Yeah. When you meet the people of Syria, yeah. it's what we do, and we meet a complete cross-section. Yeah. Don't just meet the politicians. Yeah. We do meet them and the opposition politicians. But you meet the church leaders, the faith leaders, the Syriac patriarch, yeah. and the Christian leaders, the grand mufti, yeah. uh, the mullahs and the uh, imams, the Yazidis. Yeah. They are all terrified about British foreign policy. British foreign policy is still forced regime change. Yeah. Now, Assad has done some things which one can't condone. Yeah. They are you know, very serious. But you listen for local people, and they have really changed. Many of the people who really opposed Assad mm. in the early days, and one can understand why, mm. say now they really are grateful to him. Mm. He saved them from ISIS. He does protect the rights of women. He protects the rights of religious minorities. Mm. The faith leaders really appreciate that. Mm. He met someone in Malulu, which is a Christian town, had been taken by ISIS. They did their terrible things there. I was in a room in a home in Malulu where three Christian men had been <coughs> martyred for refusing to convert to Islam. It's quite a thing to stand in a room of right. modern-day martyrs. Right. Um, and one of the local people there said, no, I used to really oppose Assad. Now I would die for him. Um, a Muslim lady in Latakia uh, who had to flee as a displaced person from ISIS described how she'd seen her husband and son beheaded in front of her. And maybe she summed it up. She said, war is terrible. People die in shelling from both sides. At one side you die from shelling, the other side you die from shelling and beheadings, and we don't want the beheadings. And my plea is, when you come back from Syria, let the people of Syria decide their own future. Let's not interfere, and let's not insist on that regime change, which they're terrified of, because there's no moderate armed opposition left. So if there were forced regime change, it would just become another Iraq, another Libya. And everyone who knows Syria agrees with that. I got three former British ambassadors to Syria. I didn't get them. I mean, they, they, they I just helped organize it. They actually wrote a letter to the Times, three former British ambassadors to Syria, saying British foreign policy is wrong. To impose regime change would create another catastrophe like Iraq, like Libya. Let the people of Syria decide their own future. So that's our message from, from Syria. And I think it's something that needs a lot of
prayer. Mm. Now, one of the things that seems to come through very strongly in what you're saying is you put a very high value on going and sitting with people and listening to them and and hearing their story. Um, What's formed that in you and shaped that in you? I think, um, and my first profession was nursing. And one of the things that is very special about nursing is that wonderful book by Professor McGrath on a moderated love, moderated love, a theology of professional care. Okay. And it describes the nursing profession as skilled companionship. Okay. You know, other healthcare professionals are yeah. crucial and critical, obviously doctors and surgeons provide the obviously critical diagnoses and operations, etc., etc. But the great thing about nursing is you're with a patient. Yes. You're in the, Professor McGrath described it rather beautifully. You're on a journey with a patient. You're there as a nurse or nurses 24 hours a day you're there when they're, they're most vulnerable you're there at night and they're lonely and the nurse's role is to be alongside and help the patient and be with them on that journey whether it's a journey through to health and healing or to death but it's school companionship and I think that emphasises the importance of being alongside people listening to them not imposing our own ideas our own prejudice or beliefs but just listening and being their voice which goes back to the heart of heart yeah, which is absolutely. trying to be a voice for those who don't have a voice absolutely. or those who have voices which is more often the case mm-hmm. but their voices are not being heard yeah. now what stories in the bible really speak to you uh, what are the ones that really touch your heart and speak to you in the ministry that, that god has given you well, quite often we go into dangerous areas, as must be clear. Yeah. And I almost always get what I call my fit of faithless, fearful <laughs> dread. I shrink from the idea of going and being shot yes. at in a helicopter, going to Nagorno-Karabakh or wherever it is. And so I do get my fit of faithless, fearful dread. And then mm. the, I think the devil gets in and gives me every good reason why I shouldn't go. Yeah. And I remember once, way back when our kids were young, and the war was going on in Nagorno-Karabakh, mm. and we used to fly in under fire. And it was a Saturday afternoon, I got my fit of faithless, fearful dread. And I didn't want to go, and I, and I didn't sort of share it, because there was no point in spreading gloom and doom yeah. uh, amongst a family. So I kept it to myself. The following morning, we went to church, and the gospel reading was that passage, he who does not leave, or is not willing to leave husband, wife, brothers, sisters for my sake, mm. is not worthy to be my yeah. disciple. Yeah. And, but he who does will find new brothers and sisters even under persecution. Mm. And I know that if one can cross that frontier of fear mm. and go, mm. then you will meet amazing people, new horizons will open up, and you'll come across incredible miracles of grace, mm. and you'll come back blessed and receiving more than you ever give. Mm. And so I think you have to cross that frontier of fear but if you do then you have the most amazing blessings now turning our attention to the UK um, you're also passionate about some of the things that are happening in our country as well tell us a little bit about that and what you're speaking out on in terms of UK culture at the moment well alongside this work for our wonderful partners on front lines of faith and freedom became increasingly aware that in this country there are voices that are not being heard. And I think perhaps because I'm known a little bit to be concerned about human rights, women's rights and so on, and people started coming to me, particularly Muslim women, suffering from the inherent gender discrimination in the application of Sharia law in many of our Sharia councils in this country. And it's horrendous. Um, if you have a religious marriage which is not legally registered, then of course uh, you're vulnerable to the Islamic divorce, the husband just said I divorced you three times, yeah. and you're divorced, you haven't got a legally registered marriage, you've got no rights whatever, polygamy, mm. 
and a very brave Muslim lady, and she's put her name to her publication called Habiba Dram, she wrote a report on the plight of 50 Muslim women in the West Midlands. And these issues were really causing them agony. And they come to see me, other women, many have come to see me now, and they literally weep, they're suicidal. And I felt, well, I can't just spend all my time focusing on people who are suffering oppression and persecution abroad. If people are suffering in this country, whose voices are not being heard. And so I began to engage with these, and I had submitted quite a few private members' bills, trying to raise awareness about these issues, and trying to introduce measures that might help their predicament. And I've got one at the moment which would require every religious marriage in this country also to be legally registered, and that would give them the protection that they need, and that has huge support for the Muslim women in this country, the Muslim Women's Advisory Council, and other Muslim women. And there's also a wonderful Canadian Muslim, Rahia Raza, who is an academic, she's a Muslim lady, but she stopped Sharia law getting into Canada, and she's very much on the side. So the home front is trying to help women whose suffering would make our suffragettes turn in their graves. Now, uh, what advice would you have for younger leaders, young people who see what's going on around the world, who hear you talking so passionately about the cause of those who don't have a voice? Uh, what would you say to encourage them and, uh, and how can they get started in getting involved in some of these issues? Well, I think God calls every one of us to a different calling. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone will be called to go and cross borders illegally and just Sudan <laughs> do the crazy things that I do. Um, but I think there's <clears throat> a very sort of profound statement. It sounds like a cliche, but I think it's actually very profound. And it means a lot, and I try to live a little bit like it or buy it. And that is that God doesn't need our ability. He wants our availability. Mm. In other words, our ability for each one of us is a little thing. Yes. Mine's pathetic. Um, I would say if God chose the weak and the foolish, he found his right number in me. <laughs> but if we're available for God, yes. he'll give us the ability to do what he yes. wants us to be available yes. for. Yes. So I, he has a different calling for each one of us, but I think just to be open mm. to his guidance, mm. to try to follow where he leads. And I'd say particularly to younger generation, um, you don't have to plan all your life ahead of you at one stage. Uh, if you have a normal life expectancy, you've got decades ahead of you. Yes. And I love the lines in that hymn, which begins, Lead Kindly Light Amid the Encircling Gloom, by John Henry Newman. Yes. The words, I ask not to see the distant scene, yeah. one step enough for me. Mm. And if we are available for God, mm. um, then one step enough for me. You don't have to be planning for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. I mean, obviously, there are times you have to make significant decisions, like, am I going to university? Am yes. I not going to university? Am I going to do nursing, which was mine yeah. at that stage? Yeah. You know, those are obviously life-changing yeah. decisions. But if you're in the right place, and it's not a decision imminent, then I think there's another phrase that I find very helpful, and that is the sacrament of the present moment. Mm. All we ever have is a present moment. Mm. And there's no point in living with regrets or nostalgia for the past. That's been. Yes. And God can I hope, forgive what was wrong and bless may have been good. There's no point in worrying about the future, take no thought for the morrow, except for those decisions you have to take at critical yes. times. But for most of the time, just be at the present moment and live in that present moment to the full. Give it your all. Give that to God. And then God can bless that present moment and then use your ability uh, to be available, which you've made available for him. And then he will show uh, where it is that he wants you to develop uh, your life. Mm. And sometimes it will mean crossing frontiers of fear. 
they may not be going into a war zone, they may be going into something you find disturbing and scary. Mm. But if you feel God's calling you there, then I would plead, do cross that frontier of fear and just be available to God. Wonderful. As we come to an end, um, how can people pray for you that have been inspired by the stories that you've you've told um, and uh, admire your courage, um, even when you fear <laughs> feel fearful and, and faithless? Um, but how can people pray for you in the work that you do? Well, thank you. I mean, I think above all, if you pray that I'm worthy of the privilege God gives me, as we began sitting this amazing place in this palace of Westminster uh, uh, with all this incredible uh, glorious Victorian neo-Gothic uh, paintings and architecture around yeah, us, yeah. huge privilege to yeah. pray that I use the privilege of being here well, whether it's for the advocacy for uh, partner suffering in places yeah. like Syria and yeah. Sudan, whether it's for the Muslim women suffering yeah. from Sharia law in this country, that I use this privilege as right. Yeah. Pray for our NGO heart, mm -hmm. because we're very small, yeah. um, we're very much on overstretch, yeah. and we need a lot of prayer. And perhaps, seeing I'm 80, you could pray for my health. Baroness <laughs> <laughs> Cox, thank you so much for joining us today mm -hmm. and sharing a bit of your life story mm -hmm. and about the passion for the issues that you're mm -hmm. um, advocating on behalf of people who have no voice. Um, and we're just so grateful for you and what you do here in our House of Lords. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the privilege of letting me share a little bit of the pain and the passion. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that special episode of the podcast. Do join us each week for stimulating insights into the leadership journeys of Christians living out their lives in business, politics, charities and the church. Visit forge-leadership-podcast for more information and to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.